our next iteration of the Cinetopia podcast, where we're coming from our own home recording studios. If you haven't seen our show before, I'm Amanda, a filmmaker, and I run Cinetopia, which runs events and programs like this that aims to foster discussion around film and filmmaking. I'm back with Jim Ross, managing editor of Take One Magazine and co-producer of the show. Hey, Jim, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good. And we're joined with Elle Haywood, based in Beaconsfield. Um, Elle, welcome. It's great that we get to bring people from outside of Edinburgh now that we're doing everything remote. How are you doing? I'm good and good. Thanks for having me on. How, great. Um, so you've been working with um, Take One for over a year now, right? Yeah, since I started writing for Take One as a student back in 2018, even 2017, I think. It's a long time. Yeah, she's one of the lucky people that got to go to Cannes before it all got cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, last year or years before? Or? I think year before that. 2018, yeah. yeah. So it was, a, it was a really good year to go. Um, so feeling quite lucky and sad to be missing it this year. So today on our show, we're going to chat about the opening of cinemas across the globe, how we feel about it and how you feel about it. Uh, we're going to review Ryan Murphy's new show, Hollywood, uh, review the film Judy and Punch, which was directed by Mira Folks, and uh, review the Icelandic film The County, which is directed by Grimmer Hakanarsson. Jim also sat down with Leah Sapin from the Human Rights Watch Festival, who has taken their UK festival and put it online, which will be available this week on May 22nd. All that plus our shorts recommendations on this episode. So, um, cinemas are opening in places like Texas, and uh, they've been mentioning uh, that in the UK they'd like to open some um, in July. So, wanted to ask you guys uh, what you think about this. And I think, uh, Jim, you gave a poll out to a whole bunch of people online on Twitter. And um, what were the responses to that? Um, yeah, it was interesting. Um you know, I mean, it was over a hundred people, so it was a decent, a decent enough sample. Um, but you know, I'm not Ipsos Mori, so like, it was probably a fairly cinema predisposed group. Um, in the first place, I split it into different answers. Like, absolutely, no questions asked. If cinemas reopened July, would you go back? Absolutely, probably with safety measures. Probably not, or uh, absolutely not. Um, and basically, it it was more or less kind of even for each answer. There's a slight edge to people who are not inclined to do so. Um, basically, if you end up looking at the results, it's uh, about 20% would go, uh, no questions asked. Uh, about 21% absolutely not, uh, regardless of what is in place. And then 32% probably not, and 28% probably. So I would say there's not necessarily a huge amount of enthusiasm for it, but it does seem to be largely dependent on whether people feel it's safe or not. Um, and I'm not... I, my own personal opinion on it is I'm not convinced they will be. Um, there's too many cinemas where it's just a bit of a weird architecture. I'm not really sure how you can put distancing measures in. Uh, I'm not sure how many screens are economically viable with reduced seating. Um, so is it impossible? No, I'm not really sure the enthusiasm is there. And then you've got all the all the other kind of like welfare issues on top of it. Of you know, I mean, like you know, the staff would need to clean the screens. You know, is it responsible to be bringing them back? So 
I don't know. There's a, there's definitely an, a, a small appetite for it, but how feasible it is, I don't know. Oh, what, what's your thoughts on it? I mean, I'm personally not massively in favour of it, and I think a lot of the discussions... Um, so I'm at a film school as well, so it's a very kind of prominent topic for us at the moment. I think the issue is it's very much like sports stadiums or anywhere else that has like compact seating and stuff is it's still turning people over. There's going to be like a lot of people still coming in and out of the cinema. It's Are they going to have like thermal um, uh, thermal heat, uh, not thermal heating, and um, like thermal cameras that kind of detect body heat so you know if somebody's got a temperature? Like I think it's the trust that these safety measures are going to be upheld and what if cinema staff as well? Like, yeah, very similar conversation to Jim. I think... People want to go back to help cinemas because the film industry is really suffering under this pandemic. It's always been a financially kind of tricky industry anyway, but this pandemic isn't helping. And I think people want to go back to support cinemas. But at the moment, streaming online is working as a good viability and a good alternative. People are picking up and you can see stats across different players from like the BFI player to Amazon to Netflix it's all picked up massively and that's helping to tide it over the other issue is is that loads of releases have had to be pushed back anyway and the whole scheduling is up in the air and kind of tiptoeing around a July release is a very anxious time for a lot of filmmakers because it's the oh my god are we going to know at the last minute that we're suddenly going into screens or are we going to do better by running it online because we know that we'll still get a bigger audience and it will get seen more whereas if we exclusively put it in in like a handful of cinemas are you almost kind of potentially having the film flop um i think it's a very tricky one but i mean at least in the uk at the moment it doesn't feel like a very supported measure there aren't a lot of people who are like yeah we want to go back i think everyone's feeling very cautious at the moment yeah i mean for me personally i think it's way too soon at least in the uk and um i think safety first and and all of all of that but i i do notice how at least online how or what i've seen in some of these um there's a there's a really fascinating cinema summit that happens um well, online on webinar a bunch of holes cinema exhibitors get together and sort of talk about what's going on around the world and they've been talking about how controversial this subject is and it's really really um it's people are on either side, like really adamantly on one side or the other, which which has been really interesting. And I and I also think um, it's this film, this Christopher Nolan film, I think that's really hitting people because that's is that why July is the time that everybody wants to open because it's supposed to come out. Are you sure you don't want to watch the future classic Unhinged starring Russell Crowe? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I kind of thought that was the film that everybody was wanting to go back to see. No. No? No, it's Tenet. It's Christopher Nolan's one. Oh, okay, I see. I see. Yeah. No, that, that, that is the film that everybody seems to be talking about, because it's, it's the only major release which hasn't moved from its original release date. You know, I mean, everything else that would have made a load of money, like uh, Black Widow, James Bond, Fast and Furious, like they've all been pushed back months, if not like a, a year. But that, that one, the Christopher Nolan film, is firmly where it was. Um, how wise a decision that is, I don't know. Um, I think it will get released on that date because I think there'll be sufficient places in the states that will want to reopen. Um, just because there seems to be plenty of craziness there um, in terms of wanting to get stuff restarted. So, um, it will. I I do think it will come out. What the situation is here at the time, I don't know because I think it is too early for the the UK. Um, doesn't mean somebody would somebody or some 
business, particularly in England, where it's changing at a slightly different pace to Scotland and the, the rest of the UK, whether somebody will try and open something, I don't know. But I'll be interested to see how it does. Um, and I'll also be interested to see what measures places put in, because I'm not... I'm just not convinced. I, I would like to go to the cinema. I would like to go see that Christopher Nolan film. And I think if there's any film which is likely to be around in July that would make me think, hmm, maybe I'll give this a go, it would be that. Um, it's more just, I, I, I find it hard to figure out in my head whether it's a responsible path or not. And I've been seeing you know. things that like Christopher Nolan makes sure, does does he have any say? I, I I would assume he does, or have you read anything about that? Like, because they've asked him to, to, to halt it, you know? Nothing particularly reliable. I mean, I would imagine he probably does. I mean, he's he's in that category of director where I would imagine he's got quite quite a bit of clout over how things are released. You know, because it was the same with um, you know, releasing stuff in IMAX and on seventy millimeter like that. You know, clearly clearly he has some sort of say. Um, and he would in normal circumstances. So I presume, I I presume it must be had. If it does come out, I have to assume that even if he's not the one pushing it, it is happening with his blessing at least. Um. But I, I I don't really know. But I mean, he's very big on the theatrical experience and all that. So, but also, I I would imagine though for the distribution and marketing company behind it is that they've got to be really careful about this because if they come as like the film that people are going to go and see in cinemas in July, and then that seems to be a cause of this second wave, that's going to hit more. People are going to be discussing that more than the actual film itself of how this Christopher Nolan film cause the second way because everyone went to cinemas to see it and then suddenly we have to go back into lockdown it's a it's a very bizarre issue for them to kind of be struggling with is that it could be a really negative marketing thing if it causes a problem yeah absolutely and you know one of the things i i think are you you're studying film exhibition correct l right yeah so yeah yeah my full course is uh film studies programming and curation so the idea of yeah programming film festivals film seasons different venues um film criticism so it all ties in this is like a very it's a really interesting time to kind of be in like like doing a master's in this subject when we've got a whole year of everything being different from the way it was so it's almost a kind of a good case study here to be experiencing yeah, um, I actually did a very similar course up in Edinburgh about um, two years ago, and we were talking about, you know, the Netflix and streaming and a series and, and how this is just disrupting the, the, the industry. But now this disruption is really is really something like incredibly crazy. Um, the only other thing I would add to that, I'm not convinced that some of this disruption will hold. I mean, it's something that we've kind of like spoken about offline, not on the show, but some of these premium some of these premium rentals for like new releases they are extremely expensive i mean like i re- I, didn't, I realize if you're looking at like you know trolls world tour for like 20 us dollars or something i mean it's a family film so if anything that probably works out cheaper right but i'm thinking about films that we've reviewed on the show recently even you know i mean they're they're costing you know 12 13 even 15 pounds or something to 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 rent them and that's rent them digitally, and then you're restricted by whatever equipment you're watching them on at home. That works right now because literally we do not have cinemas. Um, but in terms of kind of you know, and we've spoken on the show before. Like I love stuff that makes its films more accessible, and streaming does that, and that's one of the reasons that I think it has a major, major role. 
to play in the future. I'm not sure whether how accessible that is and how much of a role that has to play if you're needing to pay £14 to watch something on your crappy laptop screen or however good a television you happen to be able to afford. Because um, if you live outside London, that is more than a cinema ticket. Um, so, in that regard, I, it is a little bit surprising to me that this is still getting heralded as the way forward. I'm not saying it can't work, but I do think the the business model needs tweaked slightly if it's going to persist. Yeah, and I mean, when you're talking accessibility, some people's access to the internet is, you know, is minimal or, and also understanding of using it, you know, in terms of maybe people who are older and, and, and whatnot. But um, I, I think it is, great that there's more accessibility or there's more stuff out online and it's continually continuing to get in certain parts and i actually heard some people talk about that in terms of uh oh you'll you know i live in an area that we don't get these kinds of films so it's great that curzon is doing day on date a lot of times anyway and and that that's really um, fabulous but i do think as someone who wrote her dissertation on cinema as public space it is an interesting thing that the conversation that's happening all over the world right now is how important cinemas were and are to our society and our, you know, they're, everyone's dying to have that experience again. And then as we interviewed um, last last time, somebody who did a drive-in experience, everyone's dying to have that experience again. And yet a couple of years ago, we were thinking cinemas were dead. So I think hopefully that will remind people that the experience economy is something where you know we want to have a good experience and is is so important and we need to invest our twenty dollars into that that's that's my hope out of it yeah it's a really positive aspect it's it it feels like everyone's kind of all coming together to say oh actually we really do appreciate the art sector we really want to kind of invest in it this is very important because everyone's at home what is everyone doing they're consuming music they're consuming art they're consuming films it's suddenly an appreciation of we need these things in our life to counteract kind of work and everything else it's such a vital part so that's a real silver lining is it feels like although the sector is finding it tough and there's a lot of obstacles it's a real kind of celebration of the art sector which is really nice yeah and just not just content that i mean we're we're posting this on 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 a podcast platform, but also YouTube, but like, you know, not just the TikToks in the world, which are fun. And we're like, if I started to watch TikTok, I would not be productive whatsoever. So I have not done that yet. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, it's really important to have, you know, a staged play and months and years and years of, you know, like artists coming together, collaborating. And that's the best thing about filmmaking is that it takes so many people to put that together and generally, you know, a lot of money and a lot of a lot of creatives coming together on set, which is another thing what they're talking about is creating these guidelines on how we can start filming because we're engaging and we're taking in all this content right now. But pretty soon we're going to, you know, um, you know, even my reality shows that I not so secretly love, like are going to have stopped to have had to stop filming. And I'm scared when I'm going to see them again, you know. And, you know, not only, you know, not only cinemas, but, you know, film festivals are a really big thing, you know, for the industry. And, um, you know, we've seen Cannes had to cancel. And I think, Jim, you'll be talking a little bit about how with uh, Leah Sapin about how film festivals have been able to evolve. But that's another experience of, you know, getting to talk to, you know, industry getting together. That's so important. And there's, you know, there's this conversation, oh, we can do this online now. And I... 
you know, I, I, I fear that that, that, that hopefully will not happen. I mean, I do think there's aspects that are useful because of environmental, you know, too much travel and stuff and maybe more accessibility, but, um, you know, I don't know um, when you can start festivals again. I mean, they said that Sundance was the petri dish, perhaps of, of the very beginning of this first wave of 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 the pandemic. So, what do you guys think? Um, film festival. Well, I mean, in terms of networking opportunities, I suppose it doesn't affect me because I'm terrible at networking at film festivals. Um, <laughs> unless I wrote about being there, you'd probably never know I went to them. Um, I think it'll be a while before that can really begin again um you know because i'm just looking ahead to i mean we're already in may you know mid-may so you've already had the the Cannes film festival cut which is usually kind of like the starter pistol for a lot of this um stuff you know i mean berlin managed to just sneak in there basically I don't know. I think it'll be quite a while, to be honest. Or if it does, it's going to be very stripped back. Um, if you think about kind of like the big film festivals and you meant the queues that are at them and the size of the theatres and networking events and uh, you know marketplace browsing, that like I I just don't I I don't see it. And then that combined with the amount of international travel that is needed, and I think it's going to be a while before international travel is. Um, not necessarily feasible, but even affordable. I mean, like a lot of people go have to spend enormous amounts of money to get to film festivals anyway, and that was before the airfares went up by a factor of three or four. So it, it it's more that there's so many different layers of things that have to happen. Yes, you can make an event safe, but then you need people to be able to travel to it safely. If they're going to travel to it safely, they need to be able to afford to travel to it and all this sort of thing. So I, I think it'll be a while before it's back up full speed. I'll be interested. The, the one I've got my eye on is Venice. Like that, I think, is maybe a, a, a key bellwether just because of the timing. It's far enough ahead that maybe this is more feasible, but also the location. Um, You know, if something can go ahead safely in, in northern Italy in September, then, yeah, we're maybe in good shape. I don't think that's going to happen, though, or at least not in any form that we recognise. It's it's a similar thing, like, where I'm kind of keeping my eyes a bit more peeled on, like, for London, for example, mainly because if, yeah, as the conversation we said earlier, if cinemas are opening up in London, that means the kind of set of film cinemas that are usually used for the festival are all in the same vicinity in, like, Piccadilly Circus um, and stuff. That's going to be interesting because for public attending the festival, it's not normally too bad. You kind of go as you go for normal cinema. For critics, we're all queuing up like yeah everyone stands in a very kind of set line and stuff and already first thing in the morning you can see it weaving all the way back to the tube station so I think that's going to be one interesting to watch um and yeah what's going to happen with international festivals I think for the beginning of the new year will be a real kind of herald of what is going to look like um and also it's a massive deal for filmmakers because where they get their films ready to be made in setting which festival they want to go to will set the standard of what that film means if this is for first time filmmakers this is a massive issue because if they're missing out on hitting their film for Cannes or they're hitting their film for Tribeca or whichever one it is if they're missing that festival how is that going to affect the release of their films and it's a big worry that um, having to shift it and which films will then all the films that can are they going to get their releases pushed back to another festival what's going to happen it's it's going to be a big conversation of how the premiere status of films are treated um, and also it's going to be really interesting that on May 29th the We Are One festival kicks off 
which is the um, online festival of, I think it's pretty much everyone from Cannes to London to Berlin to Toronto, Mumbai, New York, everyone's coming together for this online festival. And in a way, that's going to promote film festivals to the public and a re-reminder that it's not just critics and um, the cast and stuff who attend film festivals. It's actually open to the public, which not a lot of people realise half the time, especially no. okay, in London. So now that we're publicising film festivals all together online for the people who can watch this all for free, are we suddenly going to see a rise in attendance over the next year now that people know about it? It's it's going to be one to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm that's that's an interesting point. I I I wonder if it's going to with all the other stuff that's online, if it's really going to reach out to a massive large audience about you know that that's not already eagerly interested in film festivals. But that's a but it, that's a really good point. I mean, I also think of this idea like what you said, how important this is to the filmmaker. I mean, there's a not only like the last Edinburgh International Film Festival, I went to a lot of industry events and they talked about this multiple year trajectory of how your film gets, you know, distributed or how it gets made. And it starts at a film festival a lot of times in these conversations and these industry events where you're connecting and networking with people. And I think bringing up that idea of networking, um, you know, we we ran a networking event last week just to see how we could do it online. But the ability to connect with filmmakers that potentially could be your collaborators or your producers or your or your funders, um, those those that's so essential. These film festivals are really, really important parts of the networking experience of who you get to meet. And it's it kind of helps the film start to begin sometimes. And it also, obviously, if, if you get the opportunity to show your film in a film festival, it's the middle point of your of the trajectory of of your of your projects. Um, so we hope to continue to, to to report on this and see what happens. And that we're very keen to see what's what um, What's going, what's going to keep going on. This town's all about dreams. And some of my customers don't just come here for gas. What's the password again? Dreamland. Dreamland. I want to go to Dreamland. Get in the car with them, have a drink maybe. You know, sometimes... Sometimes you have to service. No, I came here to be a movie star. I want to take the story of Hollywood and give it a rewrite. Ace has a picture that we're very excited about. It's about fame and what Hollywood does to people. This is our screenwriter, Archie Coleman. Pleasure to meet you. You're colored. I love it. If we change the way that movies are made, I think you can change the world. Um, so next up, we're going to review uh, the new series on Netflix, um, Hollywood, which was done by Ryan Murphy. Um, supposedly, Ryan Murphy has given $300 million uh, from Netflix to carte blanche to start making um, stuff. And this is one of the things he started to come up with. And uh, Jim, do you want to give a little um, little overview of, of the series? So the series is centered on the sort of the golden age of Hollywood. Um, so post-war, and it basically follows a group of young creatives trying to make it in Hollywood. Effectively, um, the the main person that we follow at the start is a young hopeful actor called Jack Costello, and 
he has moved to uh, Los Angeles with his wife and is looking to make it as an actor. We, I think we meet him in the initial stages when he's outside Ace Studios trying to get cast as an extra. Um, so it follows him and various other uh, characters in trying to make it and in particular as the series develops, uh, get a film made. And it tries to show... It tries to have a bit of a comment on how accessible Hollywood is and some of the challenges that people face, uh, even to this day, through the lens of that that period. Now, as the series goes on, this isn't really much of a spoiler because I think this has been written about quite a bit. As the series goes on, it starts to go into a kind of like an alt alternative history type route um so th- there are fictional characters in this there's archie the screenwriter there's camille uh, the actress who is um in a relationship with the director of this film that develops and then obviously jack as i've mentioned in between there there are real life characters mixed in so in particular there's quite a prominent role for rock hudson played by jake picking who very famously was a uh, a closeted uh, gay man throughout his career. It didn't come out until he died that he was um, he was homosexual, and that is not the case in this series. It kind of looks at a relationship he has with a fictional man and kind of how that then plays into it. And then there's kind of an antagonist role for Jim Parsons of Big Bang Theory fame. He's playing a, a sort of an agent and producer called Henry Wilson, who was very uh, infamous for being a very disagreeable character shall we say and really kind of taking advantage of a lot of his clients and you know blackmail and you know all sorts of shady dealings to get what he wanted in the industry so basically it follows that story it follows these this kind of like this group of young creatives um who for various reasons whether it's sexuality race various other reasons encounter quite a lot of barriers in the industry and it follows them through the making of this film right up to basically at the end uh, an academy award ceremony so that's that's basically what it does. It's quite lavish. It's quite soapy, um, and yeah, that's that's really what it what it does. I'm, I'm interested to see what you you folks made of it because it's not. I, I have thoughts. I have thoughts. I'm sure, I'm sure you have thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And reading the um, critics, uh, different reviews that I had seen I, as I was watching the series, I was just dying to see what people were writing about. Um, you know, I think there's been a lot of negativity in terms of like critical review of this. Um, not to say that I, I think that I personally think that you know there it, there's some there's flaws and it's you know there's I mean sometimes I was enjoying it and sometimes I was getting into the story and I think it particularly had to do with some of the actors like I really love Patty Lapone and she plays this really like obviously some really big actors who are there queen latifah is playing hattie mcdaniel and you have mira servino and the and the so there's some really amazing uh, there's an amazing cast and you know putting them in these lights and this you know kind of 40s background and it's it's quite lavish and fun so some aspects it was fun to be in that space for a bit but you know um the, sometimes it the this the dialogue and some of the acting was quite hokey and it was it you know it quite wasn't hokey. great yeah quite hokey <laughs> is that an american quite or a british quite <laughs> i'm it's probably in between because i've lived here for a couple of years now so um so i would just say that my my dislike of it is 
is way less than perhaps what I've read from from critics like RogerEbert.com. I don't remember who it was. Gave it like a one star, but then gave Tiger King like four stars. And it's just to me, is it really that bad? That that's that that's my first impression. So I'd like to hear what you guys think. I mean, I've watched only a handful of episodes, so I think my view on it is only is uh, only to an extent. But it's it's a really bizarre one, seeing how kind of how much the public have lapped it up um but I think what it does very well is that it's it's a very it's got the Ryan Murphy stamp all over it like the kind of it's how much influence from Glee and American Horror Story you can see like wiped all over it it's got that typical thing where the characters are like kind of presented and they're glossy and they're shiny and you're kind of interested in it and he teases you into a little bit of the backstory but then kind of slips them away skipping down into whatever happens in their story next and it doesn't quite get to the depth that it should do because it's a really pivotal time post World War Two in cinematic history, but and it's made to seem like yeah the land of hope and dreams and it gives back the audience their perception of how Hollywood is. They think it is still kind of glitzy and glamoury, and it doesn't delve into the issues of how a lot of people were struggling with money at the time. It kind of yeah when he's looking to kind of get a mortgage and stuff at the beginning, it kind of tiptoes towards it, and then it's like okay now on to the next thing. And I think that's where critics are kind of very dissing of it. They're like, for someone who's been given the budget and dealing with a really important storyline, they're not going quite into it. And it's a shame because I think Ryan Murphy, especially when looking at queerness in cinema, he's been a really important voice in it, especially in TV shows and stuff. And I just feel it like lets it down a bit and also they had uh, like David Klotz and with uh, who was I think did the music editing on it it does that really clever thing where it I mean he worked on like Stranger Things, Iron Man, Game of Thrones so he's a really notable editor and what happens is the music carries along the storyline every time you think you're gonna have a second to think about it you're like right here's this lovely brilliant jazz it's uplifting music you feel really good listening to it and you start to lose the focus away from it so I think it should have been done better by somebody who's got the ability to tell this story and it just doesn't quite work, which is a real shame. Yeah, it's because I have I'm kind of divided in even in myself on on, on this and that I don't think this is normally my my cup of tea. I don't think it's I don't think it's all that amazing. I think I think it's got some good performances in it. I think it's got some very hammy ones as well which are you know and some that are just really not that not that great it also falls into that trap of um you know generally when you're watching a tv show or a film where they're producing a tv show or a film within the tv show or the film they always uniformly look dreadful right this doesn't change that at all um the main thing for me is that as the story progresses and you get into this alternative history and this is this is the only part where I have a real issue with it. Beyond that, I think it's I think it's quite a well made thing. I think it looks very good. You know, it's it's got a lot going for it. Um, and in particular, I think I actually think Jim Parsons as Henry Wilson is superb. I actually think he's he's really he's really quite good. It's this really really skeevy guy. It's great. It's excellent casting against kind of like what you would probably consider his type. And I think he does an excellent job with it. That being said, as the story starts to progress. These characters come up against, um, you know, more barriers, right? So you've got Laura Harrier playing Camille Washington. She's looking, she, you know, she's an African American woman looking to get cast in the lead role in Hollywood in the forties. Naturally, there are barriers there. You've got the uh, screenwriter Archie, who 
they want to take his name off the script because they don't want the audience to know that the script was written by a black man or it'll get boycotted. All these sort of things going on. My issue with it is, as this progresses, these barriers kind of melt away a little too easy. Now, that's not me saying that, you know, that it needs to, you know, present some grand struggle or something. But I actually think it kind of does a disservice to the people who put up with this in real life, quite frankly. You know, I mean, there's one scene where, um, spoiler alert, Camille Washington, right, the actress who's in the film within the film, she's nominated for an Oscar towards the end of the series. And she goes to go into the theatre to attend the ceremony. And as a black woman, she is denied entry to the theatre. And this is wiped away in the space of like two minutes just by the character standing their ground a bit and like famously so you mentioned like queen latifah is playing hattie mcdaniel that's quite famously what happened to her right she she won an oscar and wasn't allowed to be in the ceremony kind of before and after to actually attend it because of segregation and it's just a case of like it's it it doesn't really end up saying much about these things it's it doesn't really end up saying much beyond uh, this is dreadful. Wouldn't it be great if it wasn't like that? And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, it is dreadful. It would be great if it wasn't like that, but it doesn't really do much to kind of like delve into kind of like what effect that maybe had on the people who have gone through gone through this sort of thing. So that that's kind of my issue with it as it progresses. It tries to start adding meaning to it with that sort of thing going on, but I'm not really sure that it actually achieves that. I think it ends up with a fairly shallow representation of those issues as a result. Um, and then, of course, and like part and parcel of this, as you can guess, is probably like the idea of Rock Hudson's sexuality plays into this, and um, the characters are all kind of... They, they, they kind of come together because they're working at this gas station, which is basically a you know front for a male prostitution ring, effectively. And, you know, it has knock-on effects there. It's just... it's. It's nice, but it's just it's nice in a way that is quite shallow, and I think trivializes quite a lot of issues. That's my major issue with it. But the thing is, that doesn't really surface. I, in my opinion, anyway, it doesn't really surface until the latter half of the season when it starts to go into this, you know, this kind of what if scenario. Um, so for me, it didn't. It has its plus points, but it's just it became a little bit more trite as it went on just because i don't feel it added a whole lot of depth to those issues and scenarios really i don't think it trivializes it like in its intent at all i think in in a lot of ways that it's this that the premise or the i think it perhaps trivializes it to you because of its execution so it certainly Mm. didn't I think the premise was to create this counter history tale, to tell a story that, you know, like is a wish fulfillment fantasy. In a lot of ways, you think of things like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or even Inglorious Bastards as taking stories or taking history and kind of reframing it how they want how they want to frame it. But this one's done in a positive way. And I think that that's something because it's all positive and kind of like, again, hokey or something like that. And that and that and it's it's being panned by critics but people are enjoying it it's a popular show it's a show that you know is for pop is for a lot of people and people are enjoying it and they're not seeing it that way and i think there's there's a reason for that and i don't i don't necessarily think it's done with great execution for those reasons you've mentioned but not necessarily 
trying to trivialize something. Like I love some of these lines, you know, that are coming out, you know, from Patti Lapone about like, you know, I was a, you know, I was a, um, a stu- I ran a studio. Now I'm making you dinner. And she, you know, like there, there's some really great one-liners. And like you said, like um, Jim Parsons' character is just is 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 incredible is incredibly fun and um i really love this conversation of the producer in quotes because it's still conversations you have but um you know i i don't think it's as bad as everyone's making it out to be but that's my opinion my one my yeah it's a very i i do find it a little bit trivializing in the fact there's a bit of an infantilization of the audiences it could go further into exploring these issues and the emotions it's a very it's just another case of there's some really important subject matter there's a real you should be like discussing the issues at hand a lot more and you should be looking into the people who went through those experiences and actually kind of giving them the proper voice that they deserve i think what he's done is he's brought about loads of great conversations and people are probably enjoying it because they're seeing it kind of a bit they've kind of been giving tidbits and an idea of it and letting it run like another glossy netflix show and the problem there is you are once again kind of pushing down the really serious issues there are at hand and it's it's a subject matter that deserves to have better voice to it like the characters in it they deserve to if you're kind of giving an alternative version of history, do it with some other characters. Don't do it with the real people who kind of live through those things and not giving their voice justice for what they kind of had to go through and what they fought for at that point in Hollywood. Like it just, yeah, I think the execution makes a big difference in terms of, yeah, if you're going to be telling these stories, tell them with a bit more authenticity or tell them with a voice that you think they deserve like make it a little bit more hard-hitting at the expense of making it a little bit less shiny and kind of glossy like people so many filmmakers are afraid of really getting into the matter by thinking the audience are going to be turned off by it and it's like they're not there is a real palette for kind of serious discussions about how history treated a lot of people in cinema at that point yeah but i i would also argue we talked about this a little bit with like um Tiger King, you know, it wasn't the hard hitting documentary about about a very, you know, terrible thing that's going on. But it it brought up subject matters that were, you know, engaged a larger audience. I'm not sure that this was ever intended to be a hard hitting, you know, it's just to bring up conversations or again, to create a counter history tale in which disempowered people well no but the disempowered people have power and you know it's in and in, in that in that way that wouldn't have happened and didn't happen and still doesn't happen um and I, if you add the hard hitting then it's a different it's a different show which you know could it could be a great film could be a great show but it's not this show you know yeah, I don't know. I, I I'm not sure how much how I, I I agree in the sense that yes, it does it does become a different show if that's the the situation that you actually or the way in which you execute the ideas, right? The thing is though, I do it makes my issue is by overcoming these barriers easily within the story or through some weird plot contrivance of which it, it has a few, right? My issue is it then, to my mind, minimizes the very thing that it's wanting to draw attention to. That, that That's my that my issue with it. And I appreciate that maybe it becomes a less accessible film, uh, or series in this case, because, because of that, because you don't necessarily have those moments of triumph. But at the same time, it then 
it does minimize it. And I, I go back to that comparison when we were reviewing The Assistant, where you look at a film like um you look at a film like Bombshell versus The Assistant, right? They're dealing with very similar things, but the other one is glossier, it's shinier, and people either overcome things or they just forget about them in the background. And as a result, I think it minimizes the issue it brings up. To my mind, Hollywood is doing a similar thing. If you're good, and I suppose what I'm getting at is I don't feel you can address those issues that it clearly wants to, because like the latter half of the season is basically fully related to those aspects. I don't think you can do those if you're going to execute them like that. If you want to produce a glossy series about Hollywood in the 40s, then do that. And then if you're going to say that you just want it to be diverse, then just have it diverse. I mean, and, and like, have no regard for history and just kind of, like, try and luxuriate in the the setting and the atmosphere. But if you are going to tackle these issues, I think you need to tackle them better than Hollywood did. Uh, well... Yeah, I, I disagree in the sense, I just, I don't think this was it, it completely well executed, so I'm not going to stand by this show saying this was a great show that did everything it should have done, um, for sure. Uh, and I think when you look back at it, or maybe there could be a season two where maybe they improve upon some of those things that, you know, rightfully um, are being criticized, because I think all these points are completely valid. I do think that there is a space where you can... You, you could have a, something like this that was a little bit more positive in trying to create this counter-history tale. And I think that's the premise is is there is a possibility of that to work. Um, it, you know, there's lots of possibilities in making shows and, and films. Uh, it's just not, it just wasn't done completely effectively. Yeah, I think, like, to finish off, like, with another now, like, in terms of, like, if you want to try and have diverse you know diverse characters let's say like one series that actually comes to mind it's another netflix one is actually sex education now and that that to me it, like i find it a very strange show at first because it's kind of this weird kind of amalgam of an american school in britain and like the cast is is very diverse probably more diverse than the like the semi-rural setting in britain it seems to be set in but because they generally create the characters quite well and you're invested in their dynamics it, it, it doesn't matter. It's more like you're invested in those characters. I think Hollywood tries to get you to invest in the issues that those characters face rather than the characters themselves. And therefore, that's why, to me, the execution is off. Because if your investment is not in the characters, but it's in the issues, then you need to deal with the issues correctly. If you're going to ignore them, that's fine. I mean, there is a place for that where you're not trying to make comments on that. But in that case, the character work needs to be a lot better than it was in Hollywood, in my view. Yeah, I agree with that. The character work, especially with some of the um, main characters, was not not incredibly um, something I, I, I enjoyed or I've really followed or, or really felt for. So on that, we uh, let you watch it and uh, see, see what uh, see what you think and let us know. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Punch. I'm an artist. The greatest puppeteer of his generation. It seems some folk are getting squeamish around here. Stop stoning women! All that nonsense. Happy stoning day! 
You have to stay on the straight and sober. Can you do that? Where's the baby? Hunch, where is she? I sit her down in one place, and she'd wound up in another. What's done is done. I suppose we just move on with our lives. No! That's the way to do it! So the next film that, well, the next, the first film that we're going to review is uh, Judy and Punch, which is a fictional origin story of the British traditional puppet show Punch and Judy. Um, so Jim, tell us a little bit about the film and what you thought about it. So this is quite a strange one I found. Um, we'll we'll discuss it in a minute. But basically, where we we open in the town of I think it's called Seaside, a fictional place which seems to be in some pseudo medieval time in some indeterminate location. I think Mira Folks and the production is Australian, but you know there's a whole variety of accents kicking around this this place. Australia, I think it was Victoria. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um. And basically, we find ourselves with uh, Judy, played by Mia Wasikowska, and Punch, played by uh, Damon Herriman, who most people might have actually recognised for. He was playing um, Charles Manson in uh, Mindhunter, and I think also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's been in a whole bunch of stuff, but that's recent thing. And they are playing the, the, the title pairing of Judy and Punch. And basically the, the entire town is very into their uh, puppet show, which basically appears as kind of like the classic Punch and Judy show that we see. Uh, the relationship is clearly a little abusive. It's not quite uh, sunshine and light, shall we say. Uh, and basically you have this situation where Punch is kind of basking in the glory of this uh, show and the adulation he's getting, but the actual uh, the actual talent behind it is Judy, uh, and she's not really getting the due credit. Uh, I'm not going to give too much away, but I mean, if you've ever seen a Punch and Judy show, you know that it's actually quite violent in its own way. Um, so needs to say, that kind of plays into it. And as we say, kind of get we kind of get this like live action dramatization of that relationship in the context of this very meta thing with the 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 puppet show so i'll let i'll i'm very interested to see what you thought because there's bits i like about this film there's bits that i didn't feel quite worked i think it's a very interesting film though uh particularly in kind of like a lot of stuff it deals with so what did you guys make of it so it was a weird one Anything that Mia Wasikowska is in, I'm usually quite interested in because it's kind of very surreal and she is exceptionally headstrong as any, any character she plays. She's very headstrong. She's kind of very profound, very feminist. And she's also very kind as well. There's a real, she embodies so many great values. Um, and in a film that deals with a lot of violent subject matter, um, I think she takes this on really, really well. And it's almost a very kind of, me too-esque film because everyone knows like Punch of Judy it's like it's based on it's back to 16th century Italy um and basically yeah punch bludgeoning everyone's death half the time um so it's interesting how it takes a very kind of violent historic story that they wanted to set it in a very European context despite filming in Victoria and Australia and how they deal with the fact that it's like theatre show, puppet shows have always been a big entertainment factor for audiences and that kind of violence in arenas has always been a interesting subject matter and it's 
how you find how she how Mia's character kind of as Judy kind of find this empowerment in this very kind of slightly misogynistic and violent setting um and it's it's very mystical it's very hazy um and I don't know I enjoyed it but then I didn't enjoy it at the same time I think there's elements of it that just it's uncomfortable to watch at times and it's very brutal and that's kind of how you feel about it you're about like oh this is just not nice to watch but then the way that they interact with each other as well is also really fascinating so it's it's one of those typical films where I'm a bit like I don't know if I'm like what I'm watching but it's a really brilliant film yeah I mean I sort of I, I agree in the sense that there's parts of it I really enjoyed and I and I did I don't know and I've never seen a Punch and Judy puppet show so and didn't really know necessarily the history of that and like British culture and like by the seaside and whatnot but um but I did I did find I, I found it an interesting thing again taking taking some sort of classic sort of story and then revisiting it in with new with a new perspective and I thought that worked that part of it worked well perhaps much better than what we were talking about with Hollywood but um but the other parts were just a bit bizarre it was just you know you know like um how, how it was a bizarre film to be talking about domestic violence and and um and sometimes I just didn't find that the, those conversations matching perhaps the same way that we were discussing in our previous review. Um, Jim, how about you? Broadly, I liked it. Um, the, the, there are the, there are bits of it that I feel don't work. I I think one of the things that it just about pulls off, right? It doesn't quite, but I think one of the things it nearly nearly pulls off is the the tone, and it's a very weird tone it's trying to balance, right? Because there is a dramatic in, impulse here. There is quite a lot of um, brutality as El said in particular you know I mean let's let's be quite clear right you, you, if you've ever seen a, a Punch and Judy show right you know that at some point in this film Judy's going to get beaten up right that is not pleasant at the same time it does have this this kind of like this strand of dark comedy going through the whole thing um, just in the way that kind of like the local community try to pin the violence on you know like random people who really have nothing to do with it um just kind of like this ridiculous kind of like thirst for violent justice that the the town seems to have there's this kind of element of dark kind of like gallows humor almost quite literally going through the whole thing and i think it does that quite well and it reminded me of some um, it reminded me of like some classic British TV series. Like yeah, it was actually quite blackaddery at points, just in kind of like some of the way it tries to deal with some of the humour there. And I think it it doesn't it doesn't quite manage to gel kind of like the the drama and the brutality with that perfectly. But I think it did by and large a pretty good job. Where it starts to go a little bit off the rails is a little bit towards the end, where I think it starts to it starts to go for this like hyper real feel. Um, and that's kind of there throughout, but it in particular tries to go for it towards the end. There's one scene in particular where, without giving too much away, like somebody kind of like rides in on a horse and flies off, and it just looks ridiculous. Like it, it looks, it, to me, it looked silly, right? And not in a way where it kind of like married up with it. So I enjoyed it. I think Mia Wasikowska's performance is very good. Um, I think kind of like this little community of. Um, 
people she finds herself in from about a third of the way through the film to the end is also very interesting um i think damon herriman's performance is one of kind of like this ridiculous arrogant hubris and the way that he kind of believes his own press almost um and the way that he gets found out i think that's also a very interesting performance i think it's well done and i think the the ridiculous amped up humor aspects by and large work I just think it's just a case of it. I just feel like it needed like one more go round in the edit suite or one more go round in the script, and it could have maybe blended its different elements a little better. So, so broadly speaking, I I I liked it. I liked what it was trying to achieve, and I think it does quite a good job. But it just doesn't quite balance all the different aspects for me. I think it could have it could have woven them together with a little more. Uh, I don't want to say skill because I think it takes a lot of skill to get it to the point it's already at, but I think it's more just it doesn't it doesn't quite reach the level it wants to with that. The one thing I do really love about it though is the way it's shot is it's Stefan Ducio cinematography and he's got such a brilliant eye for kind of slightly aged films because he uses a really specific film grain and they use really old the uh, the oldest version of cameras they can get because they really wanted to shoot it on um, film to give it a much more kind of authentic grainy feel and that's what works so much with kind of slightly kind of medieval style filming but instead like used a really clever pattern of layering and stuff and so visually it works well and also he's worked with Mia a lot before and so those relationships actually make it look quite stunning and I have that kind of does work for me it's one of those films that stylistically is quite enjoyable to watch. Yeah, I would agree that it's it it is very stylistically beautiful to watch, and I also I think I've said this in the past with some other I believe this is the first feature for um, the director, and you know we I think it was Beats where there was a lot of you know this didn't work perfectly or this didn't work perfectly when it's a first feature and it's this high quality and yeah maybe it needed a little bit of work on the like in the in the edit room, I mean. I'm, I'm that that's really f- fabulous it, it shows that we have we we can we can expect great things um from from this director and um I, I think I just maybe read something um right before watching this about like the history of public shaming and you know and and I do think that that was so part of, part of and really you know a really well done sort of like theme that went on in this you know this this town that was just quick to shame um you know women and you know and and these old you know these people and then there's this one I got maybe I'm just really into earnest things right now because I liked Hollywood for its earnestness but um the constable character like every time you found him in the crowd um you were I, I was I was just really engaged with that character because um, it was the light and the you know in the crazy world that was this seaside town that isn't on this seaside so also bizarre but I, there's some other little bizarre moments that I just wanted to p- pull out that were fun like the tai chi like in the woods and there were just these kind of segments that kind of took you away and and that Jurgis Lanthimos kind of I don't know way to me where I was like oh this is fun and it's you know it's a it's a new film it's not you know it's it's doing something different and bizarre and I'm I'm liking where it's going so I think it's worth the look and I think I think we all do here so give it give it a give it a whirl and let us know what you think.
right, so the next film we're going to review is The County. So Elle, why don't you tell us a little bit about this film? So The County is um, by Icelandic filmmaker Grimar Harakonsen, um, whose last film was Rams, which was debuted at the Cannes Centre Center Garden in 2015. Um, and uh, The County follows similar lines of its base on Icelandic sheep farming. And this film in particular looks at Inga, who um, has uh, her and her husband have a farm out in Iceland and they profit, uh, they um, trade solely under a co-op. Now, the idea of a co-op system in Iceland was kind of developed out of kind of protest against the big corporations and kind of big brands in Reykjavik in the centre. So this tiny village, they all kind of trade within this co-op system. However, it's very corrupt. It's very capitalist because of the leaders in charge. Um, it's a bit of a spoiler, but it starts at the very beginning of the film. It's after the death of her husband, which is under quite mysterious circumstances. Inga, as an underdog character, kind of fights up against this co-op um, and in her kind of protest tries to rope in other farmers um, to kind of so that it's a celebration of kind of bringing together kind of the community farming community, celebrating local produce. And it's a really great discussion about Icelandic culture in the modern day and how that works um, for a lot of uh, farm fil uh, film, not filmmakers, farmers out um, in the kind of very rural kind of Icelandic wilderness. Um, and it was premiered at TIFF in 2019. Um, so yeah, I was I was a big fan of this. I'm always here for Scandinavian kind of social realism. It brings about some fantastic discussions. And Inga, who's played by um, Ardnis Heron Elgadisto, kind of really, um, really fantastic actress. Kind of, there's a lot, there's a lot um, of potential with her. And she's, it's a very kind of feminist film that looks at, her vulnerabilities kind of around the death of her husband and kind of going up with this kind of very male dominated corporation. Um, so it's very kind of protest and kind of sentimental at the same time. And yeah, keen to hear what you guys think. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, this certainly, I think there's always one film or show that really stands out in our, in our week. And this one, that was that for me. Um, and I particularly, uh, you know, I think last time we, we, we discussed never, rarely, sometimes, always, and there was something about the way that there was less dialogue than you would expect or less drama in, in it that, um, that, but you could, but because it was concise, you could, you could really feel the emotions of these actors and that particularly with the main character of this film, um, I think happened and I, I really felt for her her story and her plight and and sometimes her her willingness to you know to to spray milk on on the co-op that was one of my favorite parts but um but yeah I, it was a, a really great film it was beautiful it was um really well acted and um you know and and dealt with you know serious issues so so um highly highly loved it Jim yeah no I'd agree with that I think um it it's a bit it, it, this is the thing I seem to keep coming back to, right? When we talk about these films on the show, and it's the same with never, never, rarely, sometimes, always on the last show, and various other ones. The best films, particularly these ones which are telling small personal stories, it's just a well-told story, you know. I mean, and like the the acting is excellent, and it really brings you into the character of Inga and kind of like the emotions that she's going through. 
and part of that is um the performance obviously but the rest of it is the the actual direction of the the actors themselves and there's loads of little touches here um much like as i say the 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 film we spoke about on the last show where you just get that sense of what is happening and one bit that really stood out to me is such a little thing is Inga's talking to um her children about um the father's death and it's just this lovely moment where she tells them something about it and they just kind of like they cover their mouth kind of in shock but they both do it in unison it's like it's just and it's these just like these wonderful little moments that make it um, so well pitched and so well realised in terms of the characters and the story that they are inhabiting. On top of that, there is also kind of like certain unique slants to it in the sense that this sort of story, this, um, you know, the the David versus Goliath thing, right, comes up quite a lot. And, you know, I mean, if you were to think about kind of... Um, you know, a woman going up against corporate entities, and the one that everybody goes to in their head, of course, is Erdan Brockovich and things like that, but I think that story's popped up a few times, but what's quite interesting about this one is it also brings a little bit of that kind of you know, Scandinavia, I mean I know as it's Iceland, so we're probably stretching the definition of Scandinavia at this point, but that kind of like that Nordic um, that Nordic kind of like slightly bleak tone, but yet there's an just this element of like weird humor to it and i think like the milk spraying scene that amanda mentioned that's something that would to me fit in alongside that so that's where in contrast to let's say judy and punch which i think most i think generally we 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 seem to be sort of like reasonably on board with but this is a good example of when it balances that tone really extremely well i think this film goes between like i don't want to say corporate but kind of like business intrigue personal drama um, some slight kind of like dark humor as well and it it weaves between them very very naturally just as the characters themselves do you know they can go from despair to determination and it all feels very natural and works very well and i think a lot of that comes down to um the way the film is shot in terms of it's got that quite naturalistic feel to it but also it knows when to make it more tense and it reminded me of um the insider at one point there's a scene where kind of like you know some of the some co-op goons try to basically intimidate inga and it it, it reminded me of a lot of films that i like but also it brings its own unique tone and style to the table and i think it's i think it, this is one where i think it's executed well and it's just a very well told story it's interesting because I saw another film last year that was Icelandic called Woman at War that was also about a woman sort of taking on the environmental, you know, environmental issues and taking on the system and, and, and being, you know, ostracized in Iceland. So when I first saw this, I... And I was like, wow, there's a lot of Icelandic films about the, you know, one woman against the country. But um, I thought this one was way better, again, in this tone that was sort of heartfelt and, you know, and and social realism, like you mentioned. And and I, I enjoyed that than the than the quirkiness of Women at War, even though Women at War was fun. And, you know, it was it was a totally different take. But um, but it, it was interesting to see they both kind of came out around the same time. Yeah, because I saw I saw Women at War, and it kind of it, it. I think it leans on the comedic aspects more, but I think that I th- I agree with you in that this is 
better. It's got a slightly different tone, but it balances those aspects better than I think Women at War did. You know, but it's a, it's a very apt comparison. They are very similar in that regard. It's a great demonstration as well of what can just be a good story on a very simple premise. Is it's about farm, like farm farmers and farming in Iceland. It's a very normal life story. It's looking at people's kind of work habits. You see her like mucking out on the farms to yeah, very amusingly flinging cow dung at um, people who are doesn't quite agree with and it's it has got a really funny tone to it but it's really kind of just subtle it's that sort of kind of sarcastic nature to it they're kind of really fed up with just the way things are going but a real kind of full kind of foolhardy like going out and actually doing something and the fact that they kind of bring in social media to like a very rural community and how she kind of takes to Facebook for her protests and is like she does a very kind of great hesitant moment of oh do I send that do I not but that's not in a kind of a cheesy way it's very like all right I'm going to do this see what happens and then deals with all the consequences in a very mature way but also it's really subtly kind of it's very even not subtly it's very profoundly brave in the terms of to get this equality for all the other farmers it means risking her own livelihoods and whilst also managing yeah with her children with her grieving keeping the farm running it shows this great multitasking of women in it as well and I think it's just a great subject matter and it's highly relatable and you see Icelandic films are becoming much more popular with an international audience because of the way they tell really great relevant stories to a lot of people and a lot of emotions you can identify with but that's really interesting as well. And you're like, okay, that was a really good film. And that's what I think a lot of people are looking forward to. Just, they want it to, yeah, there's so many films that are very hard hitting, very super emotional or very showy and very shiny. And this is just a really great story that's funny yet sincere. Um, and it just, yeah, I just really enjoy it. And I think that Grimmer tells it brilliantly and also getting um, Valgeir Sergerson, who's a really famous Icelandic composer, which makes the score beautiful as well. I mean, Iceland is a sweeping great expanse and kind of getting to highlight the rural villages through this like a beautiful melodic composition. It's just, it brings it together really nicely. It's a big fan. Yeah, there's, um, there's as I say, it's just, there's some good visual attention to detail as well. I mean, I'm sure you could... You could talk about the way it kind of like frames a landscape when she's out looking at things and just, you know, the way it deals with kind of like, you know, confrontations between the characters. But even just, I, I think back to the start of the film where it goes to great lengths in kind of establishing shots to put an emphasis on um, the sort of the, the mechanized milking system for the cows, right? And it's only when you get later into the, the film that it, it that actually starts to play a part in the plot and you realize that actually that was very good kind of like you know like Chekhov's milking machine basically right it was doing that it was doing this setup very well so it's a very well told story it's got good acting i i like the the things it's trying to communicate and the the issues that kind of like form the foundation if you like but it it's just a very well executed film and i think it balances all different elements really pretty well and when does that come out jim do you know or is it already out on video on demand it will it's uh, going to be out on May 22nd on Curzon Home Cinema. Okay, May 22nd. So I'm here with uh, Leah Sapin, who is Associate Director, Programming and Production at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival. And we thought it would be a good idea to talk to her ahead of 
the festival going digital with its London edition, uh, which was curtailed early in the year. Uh, Leah, where do you find yourself at the moment and how are you getting on? I'm actually in Cape Town, South Africa, um, which is not where I live uh, or have. I spent three months here seven years ago, the closest I know it. It's a very hard lockdown here, um, but you know, it means I have lots of time to watch films and do Zoom calls. That's so silver line. I was like, could you tell us just a little bit about the the festival's history to get started? Because it's obviously it's associated with Human Rights Watch, who are an organisation yeah. who who um, look at human rights issues. Funnily enough, uh, the world over. Um, what role does the the film festival play within that organisation? How did it come about? So where um, we've been actually going for thirty one years in New York. Um, it's our twenty. It has was our twenty fourth edition in London, and we've been part of the organisation uh, in the sense that we're using a lot of the tools and resources, the expertise of our researchers, but we are curating films externally so none of these are made by human rights watch employees or we're operating like a film festival that gives the opportunity for the members of the public to engage with the human rights issues beyond just the film so we see our festival as yes there are these screenings but they're part of events so we have this around 30 minutes after each screen to really deep into the topics um, so yeah, we've been a complementary arm of Human Rights Watch in that sense, that we can bring in the work that's already been done and often not getting enough press, um, remote corners of the world or uh, issues that journalists aren't particularly touching right now. And we really bring them to the fore uh, with a different way of communicating and interacting with information, really. And I was wondering how... How do, how was the decision made and what was the process about transitioning to doing it fully online, um, certainly for the London right. one? Because certainly on the basis of what you've said there and from what I can see about the, the programme that's planned, audience participation and Q&As and like being actually to be able to engage with the issues that the films bring yeah. up is, is so important. So how Absolutely. did you, how did the team go about trying to, recreate that as best as possible in this kind of digital yeah. online environment yeah i mean as everyone knows it's a so much of an unknown right now i think the film industry has been impacted in the sense that no one is going to the films no one is going uh engaging with other people having dialogue in person being able to um really see this as a group experience which is what we love about the festival and what I mean, we work with the Barbican, Regent Street Cinema and Curzon. We're going to be at Curzon Soho and they're incredible partners. You know, we each bring our audiences there. We're trying to reach people who've been directly impacted by the issue or um, maybe people that know about Human Rights Watch, uh, maybe people that know about the film. And then the cinemas are really able to bring cinema going audiences who just love good films. So it's a really beautiful room that we keep, that we have together. Um, so it's a real shame to lose that this year and we, you know, looks forward to bringing that back next year. Um, but for this year, we, you know, we had these amazing films, these amazing filmmakers. We had panels already set. I mean, we literally closed the festival, I think, 
we announced it the day after opening night. So we had our opening night. This was like at the worst time in terms of March. I mean, we just, no one had any idea what was going on. No businesses had closed or events had really canceled besides I think the London Book Fair at that point. So we had a lot of this work that we didn't want to uh, go to waste. And actually this opportunity occurs on home cinemas meant that these films could be seen beyond just the London metropolitan area. I mean, this is viewable across the UK um, and Ireland. And we are still doing um, a, a Q&A for each film, actually. So we have, which can extend longer than 30 minutes. Um, and so we, we just hosted one very recently uh, for a film called Crip Camp that's on Netflix that you should all go see or sit and see. Um, and it really offers that space when people are in the comfort of their own home uh, to see this conversation unfold but also interact so we, we do um, dedicate quite a large portion of that Q&A to audience questions that we're collecting from the chat so there's still that dialogue going on um, and then we're posting the videos online for people to further engage so we're really hoping that actually this will reach more people and accessibility wise. I mean, I think if you uh, we're often trying to think about how audiences with disabilities might be able to engage with our films and conversations. And we're hoping again, that if we're able to uh, bring this to people's homes, this might offer new ways to engage uh, with these titles. Yeah, it's something I've been wondering. Um the more and more i see festivals and and even just cinemas actually um doing these online q a events i'm wondering if this kind of enforced period of experimentation might like make people like pick and choose the bits that they actually think could work in the longer term um because i think accessibility is such an important such an important thing generally but i think also for the type of films that the human rights watch film festival is doing um in particular, there's a very, very accomplished body here in Scotland, uh, Take One Action, who show similar sort of films. And they, like a lot of the issues they bring up are very important. I think it's it, it's a great thing to be able to try and get it to, to more people. Um, yeah. One thing I was wondering is, because you've got, for now anyway, this kind of non-traditional audience in the sense that, you know, it's not a it's not a public gathering, you're not having the, the quite the same person-to-person -person interaction... Did that affect at all which films were considered for um, the digital edition, or did it, or was it, or did the focus really just remain purely on the issues that the team wanted to highlight? Yeah, so we're the, the same titles that we were going to show in our London edition. There's a few titles that we didn't include, and that's. I mean, I'm amazed that we were able to work with so many titles and build a kind of. Uh, mutually beneficial for our audiences and for the filmmakers situation. So because all of this is being semi-created at the point of, you know, idea at this point, at the, at the um, point of inception, we, I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with all of our filmmakers, the film teams, Curzon Home Cinema, our partners, Barbican and Regent Street. I mean, everyone just kind of operated within such a small time frame to build what is extremely difficult for filmmakers to know the, uh, navigate the ins and outs of, of rights. You know, so there's how, um, 
having your film online might impact your chances of being at another festival or having a broadcast deal. So we had to work out a lot of those uh, question marks. And unfortunately, because we had such a small time frame, um, we weren't able to do that with every film. But I mean, out of 13 films, we have nine. Um, one of them was already a Netflix film that was available on. Um, so it's really about, you know, uh, I, I think proportionally a good chunk of our program. So yeah, it definitely wasn't picking and choosing like which ones would um, suit this model more. So with each of the Q and A's we have, uh, you know, we have already built those relationships with the people who are on the panel, um, but we're gonna do kind of chats beforehand, um, really share materials and offer this mutual points of interaction essentially uh, for folks. But we can always take those conversations continued afterwards if people send questions via Twitter or Instagram or Facebook where we'll be streaming as well. Fantastic. I, I, I didn't know that about the, um, that, that, that's an impressive ratio to get into the online, yeah. the online edition. It's um, on a more, on a more general kind of programming note for the festival obviously for the for the sort of topics that are being um dealt with in the films there's quite a lag between begin or for many of them anyway there could be quite a lag between mm. beginning the film uh, as a as a mm. production and then actually having a finished comprehensive um story i suppose is, is, is the way you yeah. put it how how does that factor into the choosing of the films i mean in, independent of anything to do with them going online or anything like that just purely because a lot of these things will have faded from the the headlines perhaps <clears throat> by the time you get a, a a quality film about them is it done purely just on the basis of the quality of the film uh, or do you also try and look for topics that have have maybe faded from the public consciousness to say look this is still an issue and here's mm -hmm. a wonderful piece of storytelling that shows you why. Um, yeah. So I'm just wondering about because obviously, the, the, like obviously, there must be a huge, huge amount of human rights issues cropping up right now. Like at the minute we are speaking, but in terms of um, documentary film that will display yeah. that, it might not show up for two, three, maybe even longer number of years. So yeah. how does that yeah. lag play into the selection process? Yeah, it's a really good question because. Um, I think it's such a difficult task to ask filmmakers to make, you know, just like kind of rapid response documentary films that will be engaging, entertaining and informative that, you know, are over 60 minutes, which is usually what we show um, kind of feature length films. So, um, but the sad thing is that a lot of the information, the lessons learned, the messages are are last quite long. They still have impact on a society or a group of people today. So, um, you know, it might cover an event. I'm just thinking of Radio Silence, the, the film about a Mexican journalist, a female journalist who's, uh, it covers, I think in 2015, there's a scandal and then continues a couple of years afterwards. But even right now, the issues that she's dealing with, the shutdown of independent press, the attacks um, on people who speak out against different governments, it can be external to Mexico where people find relevancy and that we're able to bring out in those Q and A's. So you actually end up with, um, so we are looking for films, yes, that touch on an issue that is 
pertinent. It's extremely important right now, even if it's not in the headlines. But it might be that it's the long tail of those issues that really, really have relevance. Um, so sorry, that's a long answer. But I think it is a combination. Um, really, they have to be good films. I mean, we watch them with a eye of what's what our audience is going to respond to as well as what we think is important. You know, they're theatrical, festival-ready films, which is what's also pretty exciting about the festival is that always kind of new uh, films that are just coming out on the circuit and that film review is also want to take a look at and film lovers also want to see. So it's not just sectioned off to people who are passionate about human rights. Yeah, in particular, I, I'm quite pleased because I've I've managed to get a hold of some of the films to review them ahead of the, the festival and pass them on to, with my, my other hat on, um, editor of Take One. Uh, and I think mm. something that strikes me about the the films, and even looking at some films that have pre-screened at previous editions that I've then seen mm-hmm. pop up on the festival circuit, is they, they are very much... They're generally in more of a storytelling documentary. It's not really yeah. a. They're not typically, um, you know, a, a journalistic talking heads type scenario. Which I mean, obviously, there's yeah. journalistic content, right? But it's more. Yeah. It's more about painting a picture and telling a story because I think that's that, that's how people sometimes best engage with these things. Um, and that's certainly seems to be the approach yeah. is taken with the the films at the festival. Um, I suppose what does the beyond this year what does the 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 situation look like because obviously this is very upended and you've done a fantastic job of getting as many of the films as possible into this um digital edition will you look at trying to do partner screenings for the other ones will this i I, i'm not going to say will this return to normal because obviously i don't think either of us can answer that question right but more um do you think you will be approaching the how you put on the festival and the preparations for it quite differently next year, I suppose? A very good question. Um, I think it's so difficult to know. I mean, just as a comparison, so we usually go straight from our London edition to we, we finalise our programme for New York directly afterwards and we move forward with this big New York edition that's in June. We had more of a warning time before uh, and not just after opening night that we realized it was. Um, so we actually are doing all of our New York edition online as well. So we have 11 films um, screening online in just a couple weeks, a few weeks. Um, and obviously having that prep time makes it a little easier. We're able to host our own films. Um, they live on a platform where people can find find out a lot more information about Human Rights Watch, um, and that's available across the US. I think also the fact that we're able to bring in people on that panel from different corners of the world, um, and the environmental impact of that is much reduced when you're doing it on over the internet rather than in planes. Uh, so I think that will likely bear an impact. I think, um, so yeah, expanding the audience and expanding the uh, people that we have on those conversations, I think we'll, we'll likely take into account. I mean, the, the reality is that 
producing a film festival, whether it's online or in person, is a lot of work. Um, and I think we'll have to just re-look at like how did this reach um, as many people as we wanted? Did people tune in at that time? And this time next year, will people be done with online content? Will they only want to be in person? We don't know. So yeah, I think it's going to take a lot of reflecting um, over the summer and just keeping our eyes on obviously the situation happening in each country, each city to know next steps. It's very hard to predict. Yeah, so thank you. Um, it's really fascinating to hear how uh, festivals are coping with this current situation, what might carry forward into the future and just how all those those priorities are being uh, juggled. Um, if you can just finish off with it, when, when is the festival running online? Like when are the majority? Because there's Q&A events associated with the, the films which are available on yeah. Curzon Home Cinema and various other um, sources. So what are the what are the dates for that? So May 22nd to June 5th is when uh, the window that you can see the films. And then what we've done is uh, kind of staggered out the Q&As into a program so you're not having to watch them all at once. And you can engage with all of them or some of them as you wish. And uh, we have a lineup of all of those Q&As on our film festival website, which is FF hrw.org and uh, you can look at each film you can register ahead of time which will send you a reminder when our events are um, it's free obviously and then we will be also streaming to facebook live from the human rights watch account um, for each of those days just to add uh, they will have closed captioning um available for people audiences who are deaf or hard of fantastic um so we'll put some links to that on the the cinetopia social channels and also um take one and cinetopia will probably be reviewing some of the films as well so keep an eye out for that right. it looks like an excellent program uh, a lot of great issues being brought up and yeah. what look like a lot of excellent films thank you so much jim yeah thank you for speaking with me take care all right take care So finally, we will be doing um, our review of short our short films that are available, hopefully online. I think I just checked to make sure if mine was. Um, and as common practice here, we try to be very short and succinct with um, our review or our um, uh, to one minute exactly, um, which has been um, put upon us to to try. Um, I supposedly by Carice, but Jim Jim doesn't want to take ownership. No, 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 not 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 supposedly by Carice. Definitely by Carice. I am I am just I am merely the enforcer. Right. Um, the enforcer he is. Uh, so in any in any case, I do want to try um, to 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 do this uh, every time. I think it's fun. We really we're we're all into short films. So I'm gonna let um, our newest contributor. Um, Elle started off with her her short film. Sweet, one minute. Let's try this. Um, so yeah, actually, very short, very little I can say about this short um, is "This Perfect Day" by uh, Lydia Rui. Um, and as captioned, a rebellious team walks into the music store, and it may change their life forever. It starts out with the premise of yeah, putting into a music store um, and trying out some instruments, kind of walking around a little bit superstitiously, kind of eyeing up the cash register a little bit, bit hazy with Pity Up, um, 
but leads into a much more surprising story than you would expect. Um, it was championed at uh, Melbourne, Real Good Film Festival, um, Flickr Fest, um, and you can and uh, debut at Tribeca. You can catch it on YouTube, Vimeo, and Omeletto, um, and. Uh, Lydia Ruiz, um, a really great upcoming director, and she has a lot of potential. Um, this is a really, really lovely film. I um, highly recommend it, so go check it out. All right. And exactly a minute as well. So yes. There you go. <laughs> so I will go next, if that's okay. Um, last mine, mine was only like 15 seconds, but the film is only three minutes. So um, my the film I'm suggesting is a film called Stutterer, that um, was, I think, originally an Irish film, or was an Irish film, and it uh, won won many awards um, in 2015, including the Academy Award for uh, Best Short Film. Um, it's about a, a, a gentleman named Greenwood who is a lonely typographer, but he also um, has an online girlfriend, and he has a stutter, and he's nervous about meeting the, um, the, the online girlfriend in person when she suggests that they meet um, because he might not, she might not like him anymore. Um, and so I, I, the, I really think the film goes into just sort of that process of, you know, online communication and, and connection and, and what happens when, when, when you meet in person. And I thought it was really sweet, um, you know, a story about connection and love and, and also f feeling, you know, feeling your insecurities about what, you know, about yourself so um i recommend it it's on online we'll send you the link okay i didn't time you oh thanks i think it was fine yeah well you know i don't want to get accused of being like you know a taskmaster no, I'm, like I'm developing a reputation i want to be challenged just like the rest uh right well well I'll, I'll i'll keep to my own rules um so the the short film i am recommending this month is coyote by Lorenz wunderla um, it's a film which went round uh, a lot of festivals. I saw it at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. It's an animation which follows a coyote in the aftermath of his uh, wife and child being killed by wolves. It is a very, I think, trippy is probably the adjective that most people would probably use watching this. Um, it's an animation, and as with so many animations, it is wildly inventive uh, super colourful and really quite touching in places as well. Um, so it's quite, quite mental, um, but it's well worth checking out and it just shows great imagination from start to finish. And it's available on Vimeo, so we'll pass the link on. That's good. You need, I think, 50 seconds there, so well done. Um, so next time we are going to do a... Um, we, we, we tried to set this up, but next time we will be watching the film that Mark Nelson, another contributor of ours, um, had challenged us to, The Task. So everyone on the show next next in, in two weeks will um, will review that. But we welcome you to find it. We'll put it, we'll put a link down here online as well um, for you to watch it so you, maybe you can come comment back and we really recommend we really ask that you uh let us know what you think in terms of our debate that we had today about the films that we watched um or you can always email us at cinetopiashow at gmail.com or um, message us uh, via social media we're at um 
at Cinetopia on Twitter and um, at Cinetopia Hub on Instagram and Facebook. So that's it for the show. And um, thank you to Elle and Jim for being part of this today. And uh, we'll hope to see you very soon um, for the next one. Thanks for having me on board. See you then. Great. Thanks.